jump right in. So back to the book of Leviticus, all the way back to Leviticus chapter 27 for the first question tonight. Leviticus chapter 27. course, the very book, the title of it, Leviticus, the Levitical Law of God. So you have some very unique dynamics in this book because of some of the uh, laws for the nation of Israel, for the theocracy of Israel. And you have one in verse 29 saying, no person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. And the question that is asked is, who are those set apart or devoted or under the ban, and why did they need to be put to death? Well, in the context here, this likely has reference to a national contexts, not so much individual instruction. Uh, as in the case of 1 Samuel 15, you will remember when God told the nation of Israel to go and destroy all people and all animals of the Amalekites, do not spare any. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Saul did not completely obey uh, he spared King Agag and also the best of the spoils and so forth. And for that, partially, and other things, he lost his kingship because all of those were under this ban or devoted to destruction. And so I, the reason I believe this is what this is referring to is because the Hebrew term that's used here is in verses 28 and 29 is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible in war contexts regarding the extermination of defeated enemies. Now, maybe you wrestle with, and we don't always understand and can't grapple with completely, why would God tell His people Israel to go in and completely wipe out uh, you know, a, a people group? That, that's a different issue, a different discussion. Uh, but suffice it to say that that was the case. You know that if you've read the Old Testament. And the, the Hebrew word that is used for that uh, destruction and that sort of devoted to destruction is the same word that's used here, and that's what leads me to think that these instructions are related uh, to national contexts, war context, and not so much on an individual basis. So your question, uh, why did they need to be put to death? Because these would have been the enemies, not only the enemies of Israel, the people of God, but even more so the enemies of God himself. All right, next question. Let's turn over to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 13. The question is not on this passage, but we will use this passage to, uh, to uh, <clears throat> address it. And the question is this, while you're turning to Acts 13. It says, are you familiar with the term ministering to Jesus? I've heard of worship times entitled this way at churches, and it sounded kind of funny to me. Is this a biblical concept? Well, I can't speak for the, the, you know, the times or the context in which you've heard it, but uh, to give the benefit of the doubt or the, to assume the best, I'm assuming that probably they're trying to express a similar thought as you see here in Acts 13. Let me just read these two verses. And I'll, I'll explain the connection. Uh, in Acts 13, it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, and it lists them now, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now watch this, the, the interesting wording. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Ministered to the Lord? We think usually of ministering for the Lord. But it's as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this wording, as well as possibly, I don't know, again, I can't speak for, I'm not sure where you heard this, or, but this wording could be trying to emphasize the concept, which is true biblically, 
that all of our worship, all of our service really is to the Lord Jesus. Now, maybe we we maybe if you are a, say a worship leader, you might say, "Well, I'm I'm leading people in worship." Well, that's that's true. You are, but you are really ministering to the Lord. It's a way of emphasizing that when it comes to worship service, we are not the audience. That that's very important for us to understand, beloved. We are not the audience. There is really only an audience of one, and that is the Lord Himself. So when you come and gather for worship, Sunday morning, Sunday night, whenever it is, uh, train your mind, your mindset to be that you are not coming to be the audience. doesn't matter if people sing. Even if you come to you know, a concert and a lot of people are singing, they're not really singing for you. They're singing unto the Lord, and the, the Lord is the true audience. And so I don't know for a fact that that's the case with this this phrase that you've, you've seen or heard ministering to Jesus, but it certainly is possibly what is behind that idea. All right, next question says this, uh, what language will we speak in heaven? Well, we don't know. We're not told. Um, if I had to guess, I know I'm biased, but I would say Hebrew is what we will speak. And uh, the reason I would say Hebrew and not Greek, of course, you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, New Testament in Greek. But the reason the New Testament was written in Greek is because it was the universal language of the time. There was really nothing unique about the language for God's people. It's just the language of, of the empire. And so God wanted to make sure that the New Testament was written in a language that everyone could understand. But the, the Hebrew language was a little bit different. It was the unique languages of his people. And in fact, uh, you take uh, as an example the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, chapters 2 through 7 in Aramaic, because the message of those chapters is for the world. And then you come to chapter 8 of Daniel, and, it's, and the, there's a switch back to Hebrew, because the message of chapters 8 through 12 is a message for God's people Israel specifically. So when God wanted to speak to the world in the Old Testament, he spoke in Aramaic. When he wanted to speak to his people, he spoke in Hebrew. So it was their language. So Again, I, in all seriousness, I have no idea what language we will speak in heaven. We're not told at all, uh, but uh, I guess I would probably vote for Hebrew, all right? Uh, next question. Let's turn to the Gospel of John. Just back one book, not John chapter 19. Uh, the, the question that is asked uh, here is, did Jesus carry his cross or did Simon of Cyrene carry it? At first glance, you might think, well, that's, that's a pretty easy question. Well, it's really not that easy uh, in one sense, because if you look here in John 19, uh, verse 17 tells us, and he, referring to Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. So this verse says Jesus carried it. Of course, we also know from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we are, we are told in those Gospels that Simon of Cyrene eventually took it. And that's where we get the idea, and it's, it's more speculation than specifically stated, that Jesus carried the cross, uh, his cross for a while, but could not. He, he just couldn't bear the, the weight of it because of all he had been through the previous night, being up all night for one thing. Well, even go back further than that. You go back to the Garden of Gethsemane where he had that rare... Uh, experience. It's actually a medically documented experience where uh, a person can sweat drops of blood. It's usually fatal or often fatal uh, if a person is under extreme pressure or tension. 
And that's what Jesus was feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he already had that experience. Then he was up all night because he had six trials through the night. Uh, three religious trials and three civil trials. Uh, finally, the order was given for him to be crucified. That's very early in the morning. And then, uh, of course, you know that they beat him, they hit him, they uh, spat upon him, slapped him, etc. So then he goes to carry his cross and just could not carry it. And so Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry it the rest of the way. So evidently he carried it maybe even to the city gates, going through the city, and then Simon carried it the rest of the way. So in answer to your question, did Jesus carry his cross or Simon? Really both did. Uh, Okay, next question. Uh, Dear Pastor Brian, about how long do you think Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before God sent them out? Or how long were they there before the fall would be the, you know, the, the question here. We aren't told, so it, it's, you know, we don't know. It's only speculation. But in thinking about it this afternoon, again, it's just a, an educated guess. My guess is that it was probably not long. And the only piece of evidence I have to go on is the fact that uh, the implication is that there were no children that had come along. It was Adam and Eve. Uh, they were married, and if they had been married any length of time, uh, for a while, you know, if you're married two or three years, uh, barring, you know, and of course sin is not in the picture yet, so you don't have complications for getting pregnant or some of those types of things that would be a hindrance. So in all likelihood, they would have had children fairly quickly. So it's just my guess that they were not very long in the garden uh, before they sinned, uh, before they fell, and then they were excluded from the garden. But it's just uh, a speculation. Our next question says, uh, Pastor Brian, tattoos and body piercing are even more popular in our culture. Uh, please share a few thoughts both from the Bible and from the standpoint of, um, and from the standpoint of impact on opportunities for ministry. Well, a couple thoughts here. Uh, first of all, uh, there is a prohibition against these things in the Old Testament. God prohibited his people from from uh, body piercings, tattoos, those types of things, marking their skin in that way. However, since we are not under Mosaic law, Scripture could not be any clearer, uh, we are not under law, you really can't say that it's wrong. I mean, it's at least something that uh, a believer should grapple with when you read that. Well, why did God tell his Old Testament people that? Why did he put it in the law? It's, it's worth grappling with. But, but, you know, you can't say, okay, based on that verse... It's wrong, because then to be consistent, you're going to have to say things like, well, it's wrong if you're here at church tonight and you're wearing a shirt that's 50% cotton and 50% polyester, because that's in the law of God too. So you can't pick and choose. Uh, So you really can't say it's wrong. However, I appreciate your question. Uh, Ministry is, you say, share some things from the standpoint of impact on opportunities for ministry. However, ministry is the all-important issue. And it should be, please listen to this, that should be an all-important perspective for all Christians. In other words, every Christian ought to be consumed with the idea, how will my actions affect my ministry to other people? Now, sadly, not all Christians think that way. Uh, Not all Christians, as we talked about this morning, think of themselves as ministers. But every Christian should have that mindset. How will my actions, my attitudes, uh, my priorities, how will these things affect my ministry to other people? After all, God has placed us here to be salt and light. That's why we're here. We're not here for ourselves. So that should be the issue. So when you wrestle with this 
uh, topic from that standpoint, then there are some things that you have to wrestle with. I recently addressed this actually at Montana Bible College in a Q&A session there. I do a Q&A at Montana Bible College once a month with the students, and this was asked about in a chapel session. And we talked about this then, and I really challenged the young people to say, you know, it's very easy for you just to be caught up in your own age group, your culture, and not think beyond that. And some of these things, like the, the, the question is being asked about, some of these things can be a barrier in ministry. And so, uh, you know, if you already, let's say you already have a, a tattoo, a big tattoo that could be a hindrance, a, an offense in certain contexts of ministry, then the thing to do is just to be uh, circumspect about it, wear a long sleeve shirt. You know, just uh, be aware of that. Uh, the, the example we have on this, we have many examples, but we have Paul's example, and we have Paul's example with Timothy. You remember when Paul picked up Timothy for a second missionary journey? Because of the context into which they were going, he had Timothy, who was a grown man, young, but a grown man, circumcised. Because he knew that would be an issue or a barrier in Jewish contexts. So it was so important to him, and this is the same man who the previous chapter, Acts 15, stood his ground saying, circumcision has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation or the gospel. You start adding circumcision and you're polluting the gospel. So Paul was clear that circumcision has nothing to do with the gospel, but in the very next chapter he made it clear that circumcision may have a lot to do with ministry or it could have a big impact on doors being opened or being closed for ministry. Now, you can't argue this the other way. There are some contexts where maybe the, the, the select people group you're ministering to, it would not be a hindrance and in fact may be a help. Uh, but the, the point is this, that I appreciate the question that was asked because I just wish more Christians would think about this issue, not just body piercing, tattoo, but everything in life. How, you know, whether it's how I dress or what my priorities or what language I use or to think, how will this affect my ministry to unbelievers in the neighborhood, unbelievers on my team, unbelievers at work, or believers in the family of God? How will this affect but very few Christians? think that way. And more ought to think that way uh, because there's a lot of parallels between these types of things and, the, for example, the food offered to idols issue in the New Testament. When you read that today, you say, well, that seems pretty bizarre, pretty foreign. Uh, it, it maybe is to us today, but in the New Testament, it's a huge issue. Can you eat meat offered to idols? Paul is absolutely clear. Yes. An idol is nothing. It's a piece of wood. It doesn't contaminate a piece of meat spiritually to set it down before a piece of wood. It's nothing. No problem. However, however, if you eating meat offered to idols creates a barrier to the gospel, don't eat meat offered to idols. And Paul couldn't be any clearer about that one. So again, Paul is trying to get us to think eternally, to think beyond ourselves, our own preferences, our own, our own comfort zone, and think about the gospel and think about ministry. So to answer your question here, I would encourage those who are contemplating uh, tattoos, body piercing, or anything else for that matter. Don't limit it to that. To think about the gospel and think about circles you will be in and the pros and cons, the impact of the decisions you make. Because remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You are not your own. Beloved. You don't belong to yourself. You say, well, this is me. This is my body. This is my... No, no, no. No, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So even your body doesn't belong to you. You can't say, well, I'll fix my hair the way I want to fix it. Where I no, even your hair belongs to the Lord. Every part of us belongs to the Lord. And it should be 
on our hearts and minds uh, that we belong to him and that living for him and opportunities for ministry, ministry supersede our own preferences on styles, clothing, and all other issues that we can sort of hold tightly at times. Our next question this morning says, uh, is, or tonight says, is this morning's service about our relationships with other believers, uh, is it for other believers only or for all people? Uh, well, certainly a lot of things we talked about uh, would apply to believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, many of the one another's may, but specifically those statements of the one another's are, are referring to our relationships in the body of Christ. They are specifically and directly uh, along those lines. Follow up, it says, if these apply to all people, where's the the line or the boundary between service and servant or uh, being walked over? And and we can all appreciate the the question that's being asked there. We want to be a servant to other people, but sometimes there's something that we realize, you know, this isn't really helping. I'm willing to be a servant, but, uh, you know, there's just something that's askew here, and this is not really serving the person. It's maybe even enabling the person. Where is that line? Well, no one can tell you where that line is. Uh, you've got to determine that in every situation. That's why Jesus, when he sent his own disciples out for ministry in Matthew ten sixteen, he says, you are to be wise as serpents, but gentle or harmless as doves. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible for ministry. That is the way the Lord calls us to be wise as serpents. Very insightful, very careful, but gentle or harmless as doves. That's a tension of balance. It's easy for us to to be so far on one side and so far on another side. Jesus wants us to be both. All right, next question. Actually, I had two or three, so I'm going to kind of conflate these because they, I had two or three cards or, or sheets here on this, and so I'll read them. And, and uh, Let's turn to Luke 21 for the... Um, the question, and I'll read these. And then if you want to, you can, um, or you don't need to turn back. I'll just read the other passage in Mark that I'm going to refer to. Um, Luke chapter 21. The question is this. I'll read both of them. Do you agree with uh, Justin Peters' interpretation of Luke 21, 1 through 4, that Jesus was angered by the widow being deceived into giving to the treasury in looking at commentaries by uh, Calvin, uh, Henry, and MacArthur, they never mention this, focusing instead on giving in proportion to what you are given, and the widow as an example of sacrificial giving. So it's someone's, and I commend you for doing this, doing your homework. Just, you know, the noble Bereans, receive the word with all ranks and search the scripture, find out whether these things are so. Uh, another question, what is the correct interpretation of Luke 21, 1 and 2? Is Jesus praising the woman for her sacrificial giving or merely making an observation about the corrupt religious system in conjunction with Luke 20, 45 to 47? Well, let's just read the passage, verse 21, he, or chapter 21, verse 1. He looked up, saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these, out of their abundance, have put in offerings, and then some manuscripts, offerings for God. I think that's an important point. I'll come back to it. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. This is, uh, there's a parallel passage to this. I I mentioned it. You don't have to turn to it. But similar wording, uh, I'll just read it to you. Uh, Similar wording in Mark's gospel, uh, where 
It says, uh, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. This is uh, Mark's way of translating for Roman readers. He's writing to Romans, so he's using something they could relate to. Uh, so he called, his, he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, if it's not as clear to you in Luke 21, when I read that in Mark 12, what do you think? To me, it reads very clearly that Jesus is commending this widow for her sacrificial giving. Uh, and in fact, I was just as I was studying this this afternoon, uh, looking at study notes in my Bible, I happened to use the MacArthur Study Bible, and in Luke 21, he makes the comment on verse 3 that she has put in more, Luke 21, 3, more in proportion to her means and therefore more in the sight of God. And 21, 4, where Luke says, she put out of, uh, these put she out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood she had. And he makes the comment, there was nothing sacrificial about their giving, but her giving was sacrificial. And in the study note back in Mark 12, he makes this comment, uh, the widow exemplified true sacrificial giving. And I think that is correct. Now, was the system corrupt? Yes, it was. The leaders were corrupt. Uh, and I know that angered Jesus because Matthew 23, his woes against the scribes and Pharisees, etc. But listen, she was giving to the temple, this is the temple treasury, which was her way of giving to God. Remember, God had set up the temple. And on this very same week in which she gave this money, Jesus went into the temple, possibly the same day, but if I have my chronology right, it was probably the day before or maybe two days before. Jesus went into the temple, this same temple, and he drove out the buyers and sellers, and he says, my house, my house. Now this was the place that was run by the corrupt leaders, but still he called it, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So this was still God's house. He hadn't moved out yet. So when this woman gave to the temple treasury, it was her way of giving to God. And I think what maybe isn't as clear in Luke 21, though I think it is, is very clear in Mark's account in Mark 12 that she was giving to God and Jesus was commending her example of sacrificial giving. So I think that is exactly what is going on there. All right, next question says this. Uh, Dear Pastor Brian, I've been coming on Sunday night and listening to your hard times are coming. What should we do to prepare for these times? Not just spiritually, but physically. Should we save food and water? Now, please hear me carefully when I answer this question, because I don't want to be misunderstood, and I don't want to give advice where I don't need to be giving advice. If it's not something biblical, I don't want to give advice anyway. That's, anybody can just, you can get advice from anyone on, on other things. So I, I want to make it clear that there's two parts to my answer. Uh, first part is this. You may want to save food and water. There's nothing wrong with, with being, uh, you know, careful in life. Uh, uh, go to the ant, you sluggard, we're told. Uh, notice how the ant stores up for later. So there's nothing wrong with saving. In fact, we're encouraged in Scripture to save, save money if we can, save food supply. Nothing wrong with that. So you may want to save food and water uh, out of concern for the economy, 
uh, maybe out of concern for, uh, you know, if we have an economic crash or if things happen, you know, war breaks out, etc. So I'm, I'm not at all giving the impression that that's wrong or unwise. That may be a very good thing to do, okay? So that's one part of my answer. That's just something you have to decide. If you want to do that, that's fine. It's not a biblical issue one way or the other, okay? That part. However, here's where it is a biblical issue. It is interesting to know that Scripture never tells us that we ought to do that kind of thing to prepare for the end times. Okay, in other words, if you're saving up because of the end times, you think we're living near the end times, you have really no scriptural basis to try to store food and water. Like I, I've, I've read books before where people say the Antichrist is coming. I think he's alive now. Therefore, we ought to do all of this stuff because the Antichrist is here. He could break on the scene at any moment. Well, you know what? It's interesting. God never tells us to do that. And he says a lot about the Antichrist. He never says, well, because the Antichrist is coming, you need to make sure that you have five years food supply. You, have, you, know, you need to do this. So, again, all I'm trying to say is not that it's wrong, but, but don't try to make it a biblical issue because God himself, when he teaches on end times, and in fact, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he talks about the day of the Lord's wrath coming, he says, you're not in the night, you're of the light. This day is not going to overtake you, which is, in my opinion, one of the pieces of evidence for a pre-trib rapture. So, two parts to the answer of this question. If you want to take precautions because of disasters, etc., that is fine. You can maybe even find scriptural support on being wise, being prudent, being prepared, saving, etc. Nothing wrong with that. But if you are doing it because you think, okay, biblically this is something every Christian ought to do, uh, you really can't find scriptural support for that. So it's something each Christian ought to do. It reminds me back in the, some of you may remember back in 99 going into Y2K, uh, you know, there's this big scare that the computers are all going to stop, the world's going to stop, because the computer doesn't know how to turn over to 2,000. Surely you remember that. And uh, I remember we had just built this building. You know, we moved in here uh, Thanksgiving of 99, so like a month before that. And I had people telling me, Brian, you are no pastor, no spiritual leader. If you don't fill this big building with wood stoves, because when Y2K comes, nobody's going to have heat. Nobody's going to have electricity. Nobody's going to have gas. And you don't care about your people if you don't fill it with wood stoves so people can stay warm in these Montana winters. And, of course, what happened? Y2 came, and it went. It was a blip on the screen. It was nothing. Now, I'm not implying that major things can't happen. But I'm just saying, I've just seen a lot of Christians through the years. I've been at this long enough to see a lot of well-meaning Christians through the years uh, go down this kind of path. And, and you, you, again, you, you can do it if it's your own individual conviction, but don't try to impose it on all believers and try to make it a biblical issue because you can't do that biblically. So that would be how I'd answer that. All right, next question. Let's turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Uh, the, the question's not on here, but this is the passage I'm going to use. Here's the question. Does the Bible make any reference for an engaged Christian man and woman who have agreed to abstain from sexual relations until marriage? Does the Bible have anything to say about them living together, i.e., sharing an apartment to save money? Now, beloved, you, you can't imagine how many times I run into this as a pastor. You, you have no idea how many times I run into this. And not just with what you might think, teenagers or young people. 
I mean, all ages. I, I'm, I'm continually surprised the number of people who, you know, they'll say, we're not going to be involved in sexual relations, but we're just going to live together. So does the Bible have anything to say about it? Now, this is a, talking about a young, engaged Christian man and woman. And so I would say this. Yes, the Bible does have something to say about this. It has, there, there would be several passages, but here are a couple. Romans 13, verse 14 says this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, clothe yourself with Christ. This is a verse written to Christians. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. God says, don't put yourself in an opportunity to give in to the flesh. Now you say, well, this would, not, this would apply to a lot of other things. Sure it would. It would apply to a lot of other situations. You know, it would apply to a young couple going out, parking at midnight off somewhere in the dark, overlooking the city, you know, and turning on all the lights. Well, you say, well, have you, you know, is that automatically going to lead to sin? Well, whether it leads to sin or not really is not the only question because you've already sinned before it leads to sin. You've sinned by violating Romans 13, 14. Don't make provision for the flesh. So listen, let's, let's be honest here. You take two people, young people, who love each other and are attracted to each other and are drawn to each other and are planning on getting married to each other and they're going to live together and you're telling me they're not making provision for the flesh? Am I saying that it's a guarantee they're going to sin sexually? No, nobody can guarantee. But are they making oper- or giving opportunity for the flesh to fulfill its lust? Absolutely. Anybody would know that. Another verse that would, would, would come in here would be Ecclesiastes 7.1. Interesting, it says this, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. It's interesting that that even brings in the issue of money. In other words, your reputation, Christian, is more important than your money, than saving money. Your, your testimony for Jesus Christ is more important than saving money. So even if you did move in together and you say, we're just going to live together for the next six months, but we're not going to be involved in sexual relations, are you going to convince unbelievers of that? Do you think they're going to believe you? What, what kind of testimony do you have with your non-Christian friends at that point? What type of, if they care at all about anything morality or anything uh, moral? So, yes, I think Ecclesiastes 7.1, Romans 13.14 are just two of many verses that would, would apply to such a, a decision. Uh, because the issue isn't just, you know, uh, involving yourself in sexual relations. It's, there are other issues prior to that or outside of that for the child of God. All right, next question says this. Uh, if you are to keep the Great Commission and give the gospel to someone who is not saved, how can you do that without judging someone's salvation? Is this being disobedient to Matthew 7, 1, where it says, Judge not, lest you be judged likewise. Um, I can see how, uh, you know, that someone could say, well, if you preach the gospel, then you're judging people. Because the gospel is exclusive. It's not all-inclusive. It says, whosoever will may come, but those who believe are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned already, John three thirty six says. So is that judging? Well, I think you know the obvious answer to that is no. The gospel is the good news. That's what the word gospel means. Euangelion in Greek means good news. It's the good news of salvation. Now, maybe this does raise the issue of how we present the gospel. In other words, we are not the judge. We present the gospel by saying, you know, if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you will repent of your sins, God will forgive you. If you will not, you will be judged. 
Now, someone can take that, well, you're judging. No, really, we're not judge at that point. We're just, we're just the messenger. We're declaring the message. God is the judge. And in fact, not only are we, we not the ones judging, uh, God is the one judging. You could say, take it even further. There's a sense in which the person is judging himself. And what I'm referring to is Jesus specifically said in Matthew 25, 41, that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a direct statement from Jesus. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Implication, people choose to go there by refusing to repent and by rejecting the gospel. So we don't have to present the gospel in a judging way. The message of the gospel itself is a judgment on people who reject it. So don't feel like you've got to be the judge. And uh, if, if you're getting that a lot from people, at least would be worth you questioning, how am I sharing the gospel or presenting the gospel? Because you don't need to be the judge. You just be the messenger. The message, is, the message speaks for itself. All right, next question says this. Uh, could you please explain how we may violate the commands of accepting one another, receiving one another, uh, like we talked about this morning, based specifically on educational choices we make, i.e. public, private, and home school. Can you please give us some specific encouragements on how we can be loving and accepting and kind to each other in our body in this area? And I think you've already said it very well and tied it into a, a good passage. We are to accept one another, receive one another, not judge one another. You cannot, you cannot make schooling a black and white biblical issue. And it's what we talked about this morning. It's when you start making extra biblical rules and saying, these are my rules. If you don't fit my rules, then I'm going to write you off. So the issue of schooling is a matter of conscience for all parents. And I, I appreciate you raising this point because this is something, by the way, as an elder board, we, have, we really have sort of kept an eye on through the years. We've talked about this off and on through the years because as an elder board, we know the potential this has in churches to really be divisive. People start drawing lines over public school, private school, Christian school, uh, home school, etc. And we've refused. As long as, uh, as uh, I can remember now as an elder board, we have talked about this off and on to make sure that we do not let this become an issue in our body because it should not become an issue in our body. And I appreciate you tying it in with with what we looked at this morning on those one another's. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. That's the next question. And verse 1 tells us that again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now, there are several things going on here, and probably you're already wrestling with them. Here's the question. If the anger of the Lord was already aroused against Israel, and I think the person asking the question has a right assumption there. That's the way it reads. Why did, the need, why did he need to incite even more sin before he punished them? And the simple answer, or the short answer, maybe it isn't simple, is we don't know. We're not told. I grabbed some commentaries, looked this afternoon just to see if anybody would try to tie it in with anything, speculate. And I couldn't even find anyone, which I appreciated. If there's really nothing there that you can find, uh, I, I appreciate the fact that no one said, oh, it's probably this. We don't know. We, we don't know why. We're not told. There was some reason that the Lord was displeased with his people. And so here you have this event to, possibly you could say, to bring it out on the table. Maybe there were things going on uh, that this would just bring something out on the table 
And then uh, it would be clear then to people why the Lord was uh, chastising them or punishing them. Um, interestingly, now I know what some of you are thinking, though this was not the question. Now hold it. The Lord, he moved David against them. Well, the parallel passage here, 1 Corinthians 21.1, tells us that Satan moved David to go and number Israel and Judah. So who did? The Lord or did Satan? And I think what you have here is almost an exact parallel to the story of Job. It is clear that Satan was the one who did those things to Job. You just have to read chapter 1 of Job and you see that. But Job also understood that ultimately, ultimately the Lord's sovereignty was over that. That's why he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though he didn't know, maybe even assume, maybe he did assume that Satan was doing it. But he went beyond Satan because Satan is really not the issue to us. As Christians, God is the issue. And so we look to God. We trust God. That is our perspective, not a focus on Satan. So just as in the case of Job, I think that's what's going on here. That Satan was the one who did that. But God in his uh, theologians sometimes use the term and trying to wrestle through the, the will of God, his decreed will and his moral will and his permissive will. Well, this would be a place where the permissive will of God granted Satan to do this. And so that's why the writer of Samuel doesn't hesitate to link the Lord with it in that way. All right, last question. Matthew chapter 10. It's not on Matthew 10, but we'll close the evening here in Matthew 10 with a, an answer um, out of this passage. Matthew chapter 10. And the question is this. It says, Considering you are, consider that you're visiting a friend's church a church which you don't necessarily know to be sound biblically, is it wrong not to take communion if it seems like the church is new age or seeker-sensitive or just off-base biblically? No, it's not wrong at all. You have no obligation to take communion there. Um, it's, you're not obligated to, that you're not uh, coerced to in Scripture or anything, and especially if it's presented as something that it's not. In other words, if what is said about it leading into it is completely unbiblical, then I would refrain in that type of setting. In fact, as I was thinking of this question, I remembered here a few years ago going to a funeral uh, of a, a friend, and I went to support the family, uh, basically to try to uh, outreach ministry, and I went to a particular church, and, uh, and I know the theology of this church, that they teach that communion is actually transubstantiation, that it, the, the body, of, uh, the, the bread turns into the literal body of Jesus, the blood uh, the cup turns into the literal blood of Jesus. And so as a part of this funeral, they served communion. And I specifically chose not to because I don't want to reinforce or give any indication that I would go along with such heretical theology. So when everyone went up to take communion, I, I know I looked pretty conspicuous by my standing back there and not going up, but uh, I wasn't, I, there's no way in my conscience I could compromise knowing what that church teaches about the, the bread and the, the wine. As a final follow-up to that, it says also, how do you tell a friend that their church is new age without causing abrasions? Or how do you do this in love without causing a rift in the relationship? And you know, I, first of all, I appreciate your desire and your sensitivity that you would want to do it in the best way possible. That is good. That is commendable. Because we are, Philippians 4 says, let your graciousness be known to all men. We ought to be known, beloved, as gracious people. We ought to be known as gracious people. But having said that, to answer your question, 
sometimes you can't say it no matter how gracious you are. You can't keep from a rift coming when you stand for the truth. And that's why I have us close here in Matthew 10 because in verse 34 Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. In other words, there are times when you stand for Jesus Christ, no matter how graciously you do it, you stand for truth, it will create a rift with people because they will be furious at you, they will be angry, they will accuse you of of being prideful, of you, you, you think you're better than them, and on and on. I'm sure you've heard that kind of thing. So seek to be as gracious as you can be, but realize that sometimes, no matter how you do it, you cannot keep from a rift or a, an abrasion or, or some type of rupture in a relationship when you stand for truth if someone is not open to, or even worse, hates the truth. All right, let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Reminder of International Harvesters afterwards in the fireside room if you want to stay for that. Uh, That'll be immediately after we close in prayer and are dismissed. Father, thank you for our time together this evening. Uh, Thank you for the preciousness of your word. And we do want to be like the noble Bereans who receive the word with all readiness. Uh, Whenever it's shared, whoever shares it, we always want to be eager to hear, receptive. But at the same time, we want to search the scriptures to find out if these things are really true. So uh, may that be the case, even with what we've shared here tonight, that uh, if there are questions in people's minds, something that didn't, didn't sound right, didn't sit well, that they would pursue it biblically and seek to find out what you have said in your precious word. And uh, we pray that would be our, our pursuit and our passion all of our days. And so we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.